0: Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. I stood on the concrete overlook and studied the Missouri River. It was named after the Missouri tribe of Indians, and when translated, it means people with wooden canoes, and has long since been used as a traffic way. That morning a barge came upstream, and the tug bloat blew its horn, and as it made the corner down by Flood Island, I saw that it pushed three barges of fresh-cut timber, headed to the market in Kansas City. I turned my back and leaned up against the rail and looked up Market Street, which intersects with Water Street to the east. A block up, two young kids came barreling out of the flower shop. They hopped on their bikes and rode them down the steep hill and stopped and parked them up against the brick wall of Cuddy's Pharmacy. I want to get an orangeade and a tuna sandwich, Danny said. Mom gave us $5, Glenna responded. We'll see how far that goes. Cuddy's Soda Bar was a Gardenstown staple. It had six bar stools and two booths that was cut straight out of the past. Danny followed his older sister up the three stairs and through the door. He had been following her everywhere for the five years of his short life and hadn't remembered much about the earlier years, but Glenna had them burned in her mind. She could paint a perfect picture of her father walking out and the men that came after and it hardened her as she no longer could bear the burden of an open heart, because she had Danny to look out for. Walking along the back side of the old federal bank, I saw Mrs. Luella Christopher lift her window shade on the drive through window. She was a vile woman, with angry eyebrows and clenched thighs. Only in her late 50s, I could tell that she had to have been a pretty woman at one time because she still dressed so well. I waved and she stared back through her cat-eye glasses, but when she realized who I was, she turned abruptly and walked back upstairs. Cars lined the road as Saturday mornings were busy down on Main Street. The Griddle was opened by Jerry Fox in the middle 90's. It was the first restaurant owned by a black man in Gardenstown, and it went over well. The Foxes were farmers since the late 1800's, and the family had owned 100 acres to the east of town, where the ground is flat and the hills are few. They started in cotton and grew cash crops after that, but as the years expired and the machines took over for the labor, it became impossible to make ends meet. Jerry saw it coming sooner than most, and he sold off half the farm and bought the restaurant. He used the remaining land for his menu, and provided himself with all the dairy, and eggs, and meat, and produce needed, and it was the freshest food for miles around. Looking through the front door of the griddle, I didn't see him inside, so I found a bench out front, and took a seat. Over my shoulder, I saw that Jenny was waitressing. I tracked her swift moves from table to table with a carafe of coffee. She poured, and dipped back and forth to new customers and old patrons. She wore a bright red apron, and her hair was up in a loose ponytail. Her appearance could do no wrong in my eyes. The bell on the door of the diner jingled as Mr. and Mrs. Moon shuffled out. He held it open for her, and as she looked up from her walker, our eyes met. "'Hiya, Johnny,' she said. "'How's your Grandpa John doing?' "'Good,' I responded, standing up to greet them. I hadn't seen him in months. I really hadn't seen anyone in a while. "'You tell him we'll see him at church tomorrow,' she said." "'Okay.' Mr. Moon had walked to the passenger side of their white Buick sedan and waited patiently as he held open the door for his wife. He smiled innocently while she slowly made her way towards him. After all these years, Mrs. Moon said, still a gentleman. She kissed him on the cheek before she sat down inside the car, and he took the walker from her and placed it in the back seat and got in on the driver's side. After he started the engine, he double-checked the rear view mirror, then the two side ones. He put on his seat belt and made sure his seat was positioned just right. He peered over his right shoulder and to his left, and back to his right, and then began to creep backwards out onto the street. As the Moons were about halfway out of their parking spot, a silver minivan came barreling down Town Hill. It took the corner onto Main Street about 20 miles an hour too fast, and headed directly for the back of the Moons Buick. Mr. Moon had finished backing up, and had just then turned his eyes back to the road in front of him. The tires of the minivan squealed first, as smoke came shrieking out of the front fender wells, and the body of the vehicle shifted and lifted towards the front. Next came the horn as the front bumper of the minivan flew towards the Moon's Buick. Any other time, it would have been a sure hit, and the Moon's would have been pushed forward in their seats, and the driver of the minivan would have flew up and over the steering wheel towards the windshield. But on that morning, Mr. Moon drove forward at just the right time, and when the smoke cleared, the minivan pulled in the empty parking spot in front of me. When he got out, I didn't recognize him. He waddled towards me, shaking his head and extending his hands. Did you see that? Ian asked. Old people don't need to be driving. Jenny spotted us at the door, and she came over to us with a tray full of plates in one hand and a pitcher of water in the other. "'Anywhere you like, fellas,' she said. "'I'll be right with you.' And she smiled. It was warm and sweet, just like the pancakes and syrup that they served. We took the booth in the front left corner, and I kept my back to the window. Ian sat in front of me, and he couldn't quite fit into the booth. "'Can you scoot the table towards you?' he asked. I multitasked, scanning the menu, while my eyes followed Jenny. I surveyed the diner to see who was there, and I examined Ian. And finally, she came to the table. Johnny and Ian, Jenny said. The Carmen boys. I looked at her with hopeful eyes, but then I looked at him across the table. His long and plump face, his wide and fat waist, and I didn't want to be included with him. The Carmen last name was a two-sided coin for me, One was shiny and full of pride, but the other was dull and bore a heavy weight of shame. "'Hello,' Ian said. "'Hi, Jenny,' I followed. "'Brothers, out for a Saturday morning breakfast,' she said, shrugging her shoulders. "'If that ain't Gardenstown, then I don't know what is.' The town had come to have a certain aura. It was as if once you came into the city limits that a door closed behind you and made you feel at home. As a fire in a hearth of a home is a gathering place on a cold December night— So too was the griddle on a Saturday morning. Three farmers sat on the stools at the breakfast bar. Denver Norton was first. He was a slender man who smoked full flavor reds and wore blue jeans with a navy crew neck sweatshirt. Denver was a cattle farmer who owned land south of town where the hills and the bluffs rise up and down alongside the river. Royston Scriven sat next. He had a strong gray mustache that would walk into the room before he did. Royston's business was feed crops and he grew his beans and corn, both in our county and the neighboring one. And Brett Sanford sat last. He was a short and stocky man with a bald head, and his business was hogs, and their scent followed him. Brett had a laugh that lingered in memory long after he was gone. The booths that lined the north wall were full as well. Willie and Cheryl Smith sat eating. He cut his fried ham while she complained and nagged him about his weekend honey-do list. The bus driver, Rod Goodwin, sat alone behind them with his ball cap on the table next to his plate. He popped the yolks on his fried eggs so they ran down over his hash browns. "'I'll do the number five,' Ian said, "'with extra toast, an extra egg, four pieces of bacon instead of two, "'and I'll add an order of pancakes.' "'Jenny looked over to me. "'Cakes and eggs,' I said. "'Please and thank you.' "'Be right out,' Jenny responded. "'As Jenny walked away,' I enjoyed her every step. She traversed down the corridor of booths and tables, and before the kitchen she turned to see if I had been watching. She smiled as she saw that my eyes hadn't left her, and then she disappeared to her duties. Then my spirit dropped when I noticed the person in the booth behind Ian. I saw the familiar shiny blonde hair, and I knew exactly who it was. Jeffrey got out of the hospital, Ian said. I focused in on the conversation as I needed something to pull me back. How is he? I asked. He's going to heal, he said. But I don't know if I am. The woman behind Ian turned her head just enough to listen. I could see her ear and part of her cheek and just the tip of her nose and I could name that silhouette from a mile away. I need your help, Ian said. Because you've been there. Been where? I asked. Ian's demeanor grew awkward. I guess not there, but, he said, you used to do it. He leaned in as if to share a secret. Cut yourself. I squirmed in the booth and tried my best to ignore our shared commonality. What's going on at home, I asked. Ian put off what needed fixing, and his wife Kathleen did the same. Ian ate away his pain, and Kathleen gave up caring and said made love to her needle. It's been difficult, Ian said. Kathleen and I have been fighting, and Jeffrey's been taking it hard. I watched as Ian prepared to give his speech. His eyes steadied and his shoulders lowered. He coughed into his hands and placed them on the table as they began to shake. He grasped at the mug of coffee in front of him. Jeffrey is responsible, Ian said. I remember one time when he was only three years old when he had refused to fall asleep until we had washed that night's dishes. I tried everything, but at midnight we did the dishes. I had fallen asleep in a chair at the counter, only to wake up to see him standing, closing the cabinet and putting the last plate away. I nodded for him to continue. Emotions began to well up inside of me as I remembered my own childhood. When I found him bleeding out and unconscious in his bed, everything clicked for me, Ian said. Jeffrey is a lot like you. He was. The part inside of me that I keep hidden, the one that stands up for himself. The side that fights for justice, the part that can elevate people, but the same part that gets disappointed when his expectations aren't met. Jenny came to the table with a tray of food high above her head, and the pose only helped to accentuate her hourglass figure. I tried to let myself enjoy seeing a body like hers, but my eyes were pulled to Lori. She shook her head in disapproval as she stood behind Jenny. Breakfast is served, gentlemen, Jenny said. When Jenny set the food out on the table, I began to realize how much Ian ate. He had four plates to my one. Is there anything else I can get for you? She asked. Ian had already started to devour his food, and I looked past Jenny to see Laurie behind her moving a chair. No, thank you, I responded. When Jenny turned to leave our table, her heel caught the chair that Laurie had put in her path, and she fell to the ground. I tried to stand to catch her from falling, but Lori had slipped past her and tucked herself into our booth and blocked my exit by firmly grasping my thigh. Jenny's eyes locked with mine as she hit the ground. In times of desperation, or embarrassment, or dilemma, we have to grasp something. And Jenny's gaze stayed on me, as she got to her feet and her cheeks filled with pink bashfulness. How did that get there, she asked, and she turned abruptly on her feet and walked away, with her head down all the way back to the kitchen. The turning point of my day hadn't even been noticed by Ian, as his attention had never left his food. He was already done with his number five and was working on the extra toast and eggs. In precision, each bite was followed by the next. If only he could parent with such detail. What do you want me to do for Jeffrey? I asked as I cut my pancakes. Do for him, Ian responded. This is why you asked me to breakfast? Well, yeah, he said. But damn, Johnny, to catch up too. We live in the same town, right across the lake from me, and we never see each other. We are family. Family, huh? I asked. What do you want to catch up on? Ian slid his finished plates out of the way with his right hand and then grabbed his last. He cut the pancakes and added butter and poured enough syrup to drown a diabetic. Damn good pancakes, he said after his first bite. Well, for starters, do you got a woman in your life? Lori had always been the jealous type, and it was a constant battle for me. She reminded me of the strength of it that day as she closed in on me on the vinyl booth and grabbed my groin and laid her head on my shoulder. She batted her eyelashes as she looked up at me. No, I responded, I don't. Lori elbowed me in the side and wrinkled her forehead in disgust. It had become a balancing act to live my life and keep her happy. Ignore that, I said and focused to direct my attention on anything else. What do you need from me? My social skills had begun to atrophy after Lori had died. I chose to be on the road driving more to cope, but I knew I needed more socialization. I needed to be living amongst others and doing life with people. I looked to my side to see that Lori was still there, and across the table Ian snorted as he swallowed the last bit of his plate. I don't mean to be a burden, Johnny, he said. I just remember Mom and Dad and their divorce and how hard you took it. It was easier for me, because I was older and involved in my own stuff. I was in college by that time, and I only came home when they shut the dorms down. The years that Ian was away at college had been hard. I'd experienced the building up of war between Mom and Dad and witnessed the individual days that took down their marriage. It was too much for me on my own. I never got to say sorry for that, he said. I should have noticed. I thought you began cutting to get attention. I tried to take in his words, but I couldn't allow him to care. But now, he said, I see it for what it is. I talked to Dad about Jeffrey. Really? I said. Dad? He took his napkin from his lap and wiped his mouth. He has some good advice, Ian said. He knew when to leave a bad situation. I looked at Lori, who now had her back to me as her eyes followed Jenny around the diner. Mom's a bad situation, I asked. What they had, Johnny, he responded. Together they weren't a good match. Look at Dad now and how much he's improved. I get it that marriages don't work out. But what the adult needs to realize is that the most important thing in a child's life is his parents. And when they split, his world shatters. Jeffrey tried his best to keep order in his house. And when it didn't work, and his parents didn't get happier, he felt like a failure. The only one left to punish was himself. He told me what helped you was talking to someone, Ian said. Could you be that person for Jeffrey? There comes a point in life where we have to choose what we stand for when we choose what to make out of life, when we come to know that the most things in life are temporary and don't satisfy, but what does is giving of yourself in service to someone else. That day, I made an attempt towards that change. I could, I stammered as Lori redirected my attention. I mean, I can't. I turned and looked directly back at her with stern eyes and said, I mean, I will. Johnny, Ian said with a look of oddity on his face. Who are you talking to over there? And she disappeared. I looked back to my brother for the first time in a long time with a nod of admiration and said, Myself.